Welcome to the NCJA podcast. This podcast series explores promising practices, provides guidance on strategic planning, and discusses how the Burn Justice Assistance Grant Program, or Burn JAG, contributes to improving justice systems across the country. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the NCJA podcast. My name is Amanda Blasco, and I am a program manager here at NCJA. For our first episode of the year, I have the pleasure of speaking with my colleague, Amir Chappell, Program Manager of Policy and Practice here at NCJA. On today's episode, we'll be discussing community engagement, what that really means, and how to engage the community in a meaningful way. Thank you for being on the podcast, Amir. I'd love if you could introduce yourself and provide us with a little more information about your background. Good morning, Amanda. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, my name is Amir Chappell. I'm a program manager here at NCJA, and I'm looking forward to having this great discussion today. I come to you with a background rooted in community. Uh, as a formerly incarcerated person who grew up in a marginalized community, I understand firsthand the importance of community engagement. And you know, later in life, as a professional, I, I work on the system side of things. So I also understand some of the practical challenges that go into and determining what it looks like, how a system partner or a government can engage with the community. And I'm really excited about this discussion. So thank you, Amanda. Thank you. We're glad to have you. Just to kind of set us up for success in this conversation here today, I'd like to start pretty broad, just with a basic question about what is community engagement and why is it important both in general and specifically as it relates to strategic planning processes? That's a tough question there. Giving it a shot, I first want to start by bringing us to like a shared understanding of what community means. Because when we use the word community engagement, it can mean different things to different folks or different entities, depending on what their understanding of that is. And if I just start off with the Oxford Dictionary definition, it's a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common, like the law enforcement community, or the scientific community or the sports community. And if you look at peer reviewed literature, like the literature that's kind of in public health, social and behavioral health, they define it as a group of people that interact and support each other, but they're tied together with their shared experiences or other characteristics, like a sense of belonging or their physical proximity, like neighborhoods, groups, things like that nature. And when I'm thinking about SAAs or state administering agencies and their grantees, I think of community to include traditional and very importantly, non-traditional stakeholders who've been left on the margins when thinking about what a strategic plan could look like and the priorities that are in them. When you think about a stakeholder survey and the community of respondents to that survey, we see in some cases they're predominantly law enforcement as far as the respondents, which then makes sense that the priorities align with law enforcement. So when thinking about diversifying funding within or outside of law enforcement, an SAA gathering different perspectives for their strategic plan from other parts of the community could help identify unmet needs. You need to identify those unmet needs. And if you're not engaging with entities or folks or community groups, coalitions and advocacy groups to identify those, the strategic plan will completely miss those. And I think it's really important to involve citizens in the political process because it's a fundamental part of democracy. And community members bring valuable expertise and perspective to policymaking. The people most impacted by the criminal legal system, they hold critical knowledge. They include people with lived experience, victims, family members, and community organizations. 
And, you know, I always have to think about inclusion and equity. I feel like those are key to community engagement. Inclusion fosters a culture that welcomes diverse voices, especially those of groups that have been historically marginalized. Equity ensures that the criminal legal system processes are fair and accessible to everyone. And one thing I really want to mention is that it's really important in strategic planning, especially in strategic planning, as it relates to setting funding priorities and how to distribute burn jack funding because it promotes equitable funding decisions. It helps governments improve the efficiency, legitimacy, and transparency of their decision-making. You know, I think by embracing and encouraging participation, it enables grant funding decision-makers to make more informed decisions by engaging with and carefully mapping out the needs, opinions, and visions of local communities on issues that matter to them. And I think, and I'm hopeful, that this would lead to priorities that are driven by all of the stakeholders instead of the ones who've always had a seat at the table. And you know how I feel about having a seat at the table, Amanda. I sure do. (laughs) Yeah, and I really like also what you said about involving citizens because they are integral to democracy. Because I think a lot of times we think about community engagement, you think, okay, so we've got to involve community-based organizations, which is true. But we also can't forget about people on the citizen level because those individuals are just as vital and have also been left out of these conversations. What does community engagement look like or what can it look like? And how can we do that process in a meaningful way beyond just the seat at the table, to your point? You know what? Again, it all depends on who you ask. And independent upon who you ask or what that is, it changes how community engagement looks and whether it appears or is meaningful to the recipient. You know, when I think about government and its structure, outside of the public safety apparatus, most government agencies don't operate on a 24-7 cycle, right? Police, fire, EMS, they're a 24-7 type outfit. But when you think about community outside of government, it's all over the place. Some people work graveyards, they work evenings, early mornings. Some folks work nine to five, which is like parallel to government, and it makes it extremely hard to engage them at a time that works for everyone. You throw in family duties like attending the kids or taking them to school, extracurricular activities and things like that, it then seems impossible to have meaningful engagement with the community in determining what their needs are. I think this is why it's extremely important to engage different coalitions, clergy, advocacy groups, community-based organizations working within these communities because they can serve as a proxy when you're trying to determine what the priorities and needs in a specific area are. And it's really challenging. And I know we're gonna get into some of this, but you have to go the extra mile, especially when there's a power dynamic, right? Government has the power to make the decisions and trying to figure out how to meet the community where they are and trying to work around all these things is challenging, but you know, with the intentionality that it deserves, it can be done. Yes, it certainly can. Yeah, it just has to be an intentional process. And I do feel like, and we're going to get into this a little bit more later in our conversation, but it's also to think about, especially if you are someone working in government work, just thinking beyond over-relying on the standard traditional forms of office communication, like email, phone call, and going beyond that and thinking how that might exclude certain individuals or how certain individuals might not have that as their first preference of communication and all those types of things. So I guess kind of leading in as a segue, what are some challenges when it comes to engaging the community 
And what are some solutions to overcoming those challenges? You brought up some really good points, Amanda. As far as like the traditional mode of outreach, we, we send some emails. We, we may or may not pick up the phone and leave a voicemail. But generally, we send out communications electronically in hope with the hope, the dire hope that someone responds to us. And you could be waiting for a week, a month, and maybe never get a response. And I always ask myself, well, why aren't people responding? Did they not get my email? Did it go to spam? Did it get lost in the numerous unread emails that they have that they're dealing with? And so I'm trying to think about like some of those practical challenges and how we could get over them. When I think of government, I think there are some key challenges, right? I think one, I would say, there's this, what I call the heartlessness of bureaucracy. Even though it's run by people, it's its own beast. It does its own thing and it just moves and moves and moves, regardless of who are the people are working within it. At least so it seems. And then there's the power dynamics, right? Government holds more power than communities and trying to give more voice to community partners and finding ways to equalize that power is a big challenge. And also I feel like government in understanding and managing their own expectations, both from the community and, and from the government is critical as well in moving the work forward. And another challenge that I see is, is government has a hard time being flexible and willingness to think outside of the box because everything is kind of guided by rules, regulations, practices, and things of that nature. But with all those challenges, I feel like there could be some kinds of solutions. And one of them would be is trying to understand what the best mode of communication for the recipient to be able to have them to actively be able to re-engage you as you're doing some outreach, right? Maybe not just the email, maybe holding open and public forums to ensure, for like in the SAA's point of view, to ensure that the stakeholder surveys go out to a wide variety of respondents. And if the responses don't reflect the wide variety you expect by its dissemination, well, we need to determine why that is. We can also potentially help the community understand what an SAA is and why they're even doing outreach and why the community's input is vital to what the SAA is doing. The SAA needs to help the community understand, again, this is not just a checkbox, but we're trying to make a meaningful attempt to engage, possibly making it easy as possible for communities to engage in the process. And you know, that's going to look different for different states, different SAAs and different communities. But the only way you can figure out what that is, if you're doing that intentional, intensive, active outreach. Another thing I think about, you know, when thinking about data, maybe we could do some data mapping, equity mapping. You can, when you do equity mapping, you can look at where community engagement is working and where it's potentially falling short, because you can overlap the equity mapping data with community data or with participant data, and you can see where we're falling short so we could potentially improve. For example, if you look at like the distribution of English as second language speakers in a geographic area, when you look at this, you can provide practitioners with a clear perspective on which approaches should be used when trying to solicit input from them. Or we could see how that demographic has been engaged over time. You could provide on-site childcare even during in-person meetings when, when families have children, right? You can partner with non-governmental community leaders in areas where the distrust is high or where there's cultural barriers or other language barriers that contribute to even engaging with them. We want to meet them where they're at. Really, all of the solutions I'm trying to propose here are 
meeting communities where they're at. Meet communities and individuals where they're at. I think that's a really important takeaway. And as you know, Amir, I used to work for an SAA's office. And so this has just got me kind of thinking about how we used to engage and how we might have been able to engage better. And one thing I've just kind of noticed across the board in government work, and really just in general, is a lot of times engagement kind of goes like this. It's like, hi, I need your help with something, or we have this problem. And then the person's like, yes, I can help you with that problem or help you with this project. And then once the project's completed or the problem is solved, it just kind of ends there. The relationship ends, or maybe the relationship just kind of lies dormant until another problem or issue arises. So I'm just thinking about how we can kind of circumvent that process and prevent that from happening specifically in the terms of community engagement as we're talking about it here. If I were to give my own self some advice for myself working in the essays office, I would say to kind of devote some specific time to relationship building, like maybe just put it on your calendar on a continuous basis and also track how you're engaging these folks, who you're engaging, what's working and what's not. And I think a big barrier that we experienced was lack of time and staffing issues. The reality is that in a lot of these SAA's offices, these staff members are managing multiple grants at once and they're juggling a lot all at the same time, which means that they're understaffed and overworked essentially. And that can kind of lead to a process of churning things out to meet deadlines rather than really doing things the way you really want them to be done, if that makes sense. And I think this is a place where we can think about kind of internally, how can you set staff up for success and create like a tight knit staff environment in which even if you're working on different grants, your internal staff is supporting each other and maybe even if the state decides to do a statewide criminal justice strategic plan, that can also help in terms of engagement because then you have multiple grant-led staff members all devoted towards how can we best engage these community members. And that can kind of help distribute that time and effort, I guess, for lack of better words. Amanda, you made some really good points about an SAA expert working from within and what that looks like when as I mentioned before, the heartlessness of bureaucracy, right? Despite the people working within. You brought up the challenge of capacity, practical issues, and you also brought up some potential solutions, possibly marking out some time specifically on your calendar to do that intentional intensive outreach. And I was just wondering what you thought about what that looks like when the political barriers that get in the way, the other interests that get in the way of regardless of the level of engagement that you want, what does that look like when, when you run into those political and practical barriers or lack of support to be able to do that work? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think when it comes to thinking about funding boards or administrative priorities, I think really the ticket to change and to changing the status quo is the community. It's getting the community involved and mobilized. And that's really how you change these deeply entrenched status quo type systems. I think a lot of essays kind of operate behind closed doors. And so to some extent, the public and the community 
doesn't even really know what they do or what those grant funds are being used for. And so I think reaching out to these community members and community-based organizations, specifically individuals that you haven't engaged with in the past, is vital because that's how you show the board and the administration that people are invested and that the needs are elsewhere from maybe what priorities were previously outlined. And you use that in conjunction with the data, I think, to slowly create a shift. Also, it helps to just be as prepared as possible when it comes to board meetings. Because if you're trying to get the board to approve your strategic plan, you might consider making a presentation. And maybe that presentation has all that intensive work that you did, who you engaged, how you engaged them, the process from beginning to end of engagement, among other things, how that drove your priorities for the plan. Because really you're aiming to convince the board We identified these priorities for this funding based on these discussions, based on this engagement and through this data. And I think if you just push out your strategic plan and say, here it is, here's what we did, and then briefly talk about a survey, for example, I think sometimes that's just less convincing. You need a little bit more. From our side, from NCJ's side, we know how much work goes into creating the strategic plan. But I think the board doesn't always know that or the administration doesn't always know that. So the more you can show like this is all the time that we spent and all the effort that we spent. Here's what we created. I think slowly but surely that will create some small shifts. Absolutely. that. So what I just heard you talk about was some intra-governmental community engagement. So, for example, engaging with the board so they can understand the brevity and what goes into a strategic plan. And SAA, on the other end, creating a strategic plan, engaging individuals, communities, and CBOs, community-based organizations, who've been left out of the process historically, what does that engagement look like so that they can understand? And, And earlier, we talked about being invited to the table. From my personal experience, I've been invited to a couple of tables. The first table I remember is a table that had three forks, a couple of knives, and two different spoons on, on the table setting. And I was thinking to myself, man, as, as a dishwasher, as I have been in the past in a point in my life, I felt bad for the dishwasher because I was wondering why there were so many forks on the table. And being a keen observer, I can quickly see what everybody's doing. But without that insight or without someone explaining it to me, I thought it was a wasteful act. And then the term of community engagement, when you're inviting a group or communities or individuals to the table, we need to prepare them to be able to partake in what is being served. We can't just expect them to come to the table, understand what Robert's rules of orders are, understand how committees work, understand how strategic plans develop. Those are assumptions we shouldn't make. And so when, and when we do make those assumptions, we're setting them up for failure. And so when we invite non-traditional stakeholders to participate in a government-led process, I think we must ask, how is government setting up the community to engage in the most constructive way possible? Being equitable and inclusive means inviting me and making sure I have everything I need to participate in a way that is constructive to the effort. And in this case, it would be strategic planning or grant funding decision-making. I feel like a willingness to listen is not the only ingredient needed for inclusivity. But if we understand your audience and the environment that the audience operates within, 
those are critical to lowering barriers to public participation. Yeah, I definitely agree. I guess kind of along those same lines, you kind of touched on it, but I want to stay here because this is really important. How can we best engage individuals, communities, organizations who have been left out of the process completely from a historical perspective or invited in a way that wasn't productive? And I'm thinking here, like if you were an essay staff coming in and you realize none of this engagement's been done or it's been done, but not in a productive way, where do you start? What are some tangible steps that people can take? Absolutely. Historically, when you don't have trust in something, someone, the government, or anything like that, it's hard to even begin to do any work in a collaborative way. So the first thing I would say was we need to engage on this process of trust building and relationship building, right? There's There were some researchers at the University of Minnesota that looked at building trust within communities across our country and across the world, and they saw trust in several different ways. And I feel like when grant funding and other decision makers ask themselves whether they are trustworthy to the communities that they're engaging with, we can think about how we can make changes that matter to both the system side or the SAA in this case and the community side. And I kind of summarize it, summarize it like this. There's a couple of different types of trust we want to think about. There's contractual trust. Simply, does the SAA keep their promises? Are the expectations clear? Do the community members believe that they can depend on one another? Contractual trust is strong when people follow through on commitments, when governments follow through on commitments. We got to be sure we don't want to overpromise or underpromise. And then there's the communication trust. I feel like community members need to know they will be told what they need to know when they need to know it. Clear and frequent communication between the SAAs, the grantees, the subawards, the traditional stakeholders, the non-traditional stakeholders. All of this, I believe, helps them understand one another and the expectations that we spoke earlier about. And I also believe that there's a competency type of trust. SAAs need to understand and address the inherent bias built into bureaucracy, that communities have the knowledge and skills to understand what their own needs are, what solutions could work, and the ability to engage the government to help setting those priorities. Convening a community conversation or focus group to gather information about the experiences, needs, and challenges faced by underrepresented groups should be viewed as an opportunity to further develop those relations. That's that's one thing I think we can do to, to really kind of knock down those walls and begin building bridges, right? Let's knock down walls and build bridges. I like that. Great way to end your answer. But I think the competency trust is really big. I think sometimes, and this goes to what you said earlier about inviting someone to the table, even just to listen, but then that's as far as it goes. Like you have to trust. You have to trust that people know what they're talking about because they do. And that's how you make engagement truly matter. In terms of thinking about interacting with individuals who have been historically left out of the conversation or engaged with in an unproductive way, something that I also think about is how people might respond to seeing the name of your organization. So for example, reactions to essays with agency names that have law enforcement in the title or state police in the title will be different than how individuals respond to agencies with Department of Public Safety in the title, for example. And kind of building off of that, 
you could also have an agency name that someone might read and not directly attribute it to grant work or to criminal justice even. And so there's a barrier there in terms of educating people on what we do as an essay, which is kind of what you said in your first answer, but also just thinking about how to get the word out and how your organization will be perceived, I think is an important part um, in engaging people within the community. Absolutely, absolutely. That That is definitely breaking down barriers and building bridges. That's basically attempting in my mind to address the inherent assumptions that we operate based on names, titles, positions, and things of that nature. So I, I definitely agree with you, Amanda. That, that's a great point. One thing I would say is never give up. If I could type that out somewhere, it would be all bold and caps. Never give up. Because, you know, when I think about it, if it were not for all the ancestors and others that came before us that continued to push forward despite some of the most seemingly insurmountable barriers and obstacles, we would not be where we are today. And, and a lot of people have said before me, we've come a long way, but we also have a long way to go and we can always do better. So the way I like to think about it is hammer them with the data. Be very persistent and consistent with data-driven decision-making because I feel like over time, it's hard to contend against data-driven decision-making when you're trying to determine or make a decision that's objective. I believe with persistence and effective use of data presented in a way that makes sense in a bipartisan way. And I say bipartisan because states are all over the spectrum in, in how the politics influence policy. And I, and I feel like if we're using data objectively in a, in a bipartisan way, I feel like over time we can chip away at resistance to certain ideas. Even if other priorities and in innovative programs are a focal point of what a board wants to do, or what the governor's office wants to fund, I feel like the persistent and constant use of data as to why a certain program or program area should or shouldn't be funded or should and shouldn't be a priority will eventually break through. I, I think part of the challenge in making substantive change is that the same message has been given by the same people to the same power structure. And in some instances, when the process, when you include non-traditional stakeholders or those who haven't had voices in the past, Views that have never been heard may impact the status quo. And in many others, it may not have no effect. But again, I feel like we never give up. And sometimes you have to remain passionate to make up for other people's lack of passion. Kind of pivoting slightly, but still related. How does lived experience and language specifically matter? Does lived experience change the rules of engagement in terms of interacting with those folks? Absolutely. I feel like lived experience and language, in my mind, are the cornerstones of community engagement. I, I like to think if we don't have shared experiences, it may be likely that we won't have the same language. And I don't just mean English instead of Spanish or other types of verbal languages, but the, but the language we share in the work we do. The colloquial language used in government is different than the colloquial language used in community in advocacy or in coalition building and understanding those similarities and differences would bring to light things like possibly holding meetings in a neutral government location rather than a police substation, for example. Just understanding what our experiences are, the historical distrust, the way we have the level of understanding and how these decisions are being made 
drives a lot of what that community engagement looks like. When you when you have language like used in committee meetings or procedures like Robert's Rules of Order or following the Opens Meetings Act provisions, that's different than when the community comes together to have a discussion. For community, these guardrails seem limiting and minimizing. Coming to a public meeting and having two to three minutes to share a lifetime of historical trauma and why the status quo of different interventions by law enforcement like drug task forces haven't reduced opioid overdose death rates or rates of admissions to jails and prison for drug offenses isn't feasible. You can't do that in two to three minutes. Government speak isn't easy to pick up. So SAAs and, and, and how they, when they think about engaging and being intentional about inviting community members who haven't traditionally been part of the process, they, they need to understand that they need to help them have a basic level of understanding so that they, again, can contribute constructively. If Robert's rules are used for committee or subcommittee work, well, then participants must understand how those rules work. It would make sense for those who have the authority, the power, the resources to hold workshops, for example, to bring participants up to speed. Again, that's getting to my point of how are we setting up those that we're engaging in a way that allows them to engage in a meaningful way? So I guess just kind of as a follow-up question, let's say that an essay is having a meeting. It's an open meeting, and they really want members of the community to attend this meeting. People with lived experience, they want those individuals to attend. Prior to the meeting, what should be the initial steps just to kind of create a basic understanding of what the course of the meeting will be like, those weird rules that people might not know? What should that process look like or what can it look like? Yeah, well, the the SAA is going to probably have the agenda in mind of what they want to talk about and who they want to talk to it about with. Now the part comes in where you said, well, when are we going to have this meeting? What platform are we going to have this meeting on? Who are we going to invite to this meeting? And those types of things. So when you want to determine who you want to invite to the meeting, well, based upon the agenda and the priorities set in the meeting, you're thinking like, hey, I want to bring in all these different community groups, but we're going to hold the meeting at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Well, it is likely that as many participants as would love to participate in this discussion, whether or not they understand the process or not, won't be able to come to the meeting because they're in the middle of their work days. So thinking about, okay, how can we determine when is the time where we can have the most participation by everyone that we want to participate? That would be a first step. And in determining that, okay, are we going to email these community-based organizations? Are we going to call them up? Are we actually going to drive over there? Can we drive over there? If you're in a rural area and the next closest community-based provider or group is in an urban city that's three hours away, it's not feasible to be able to drive over there just to ask them to participate. So so then what do we do? And, and that leads to the point I was talking about earlier when I'm like, okay, we got to think outside the box. Can we go outside of the proverbial box that government operates in a little bit, even just a little bit without violating any rules or regs? Can we somehow figure out what extra steps we can take to get that kind of meaningful engagement? Can we have a separate type of meeting just for that rural group that we want to engage or or that one niche part of the community that we can't align with. And then let's say we figured out a time. Okay, now that they're here, how can they participate? How do they get to provide and contribute to the 
to the meat of the situation, right? How does their thoughts and their input, how do we make sure that what they're doing and the time they're spending is meaningful? And so these are the types of things we need to think about. And I feel like partnering with community outreach groups, partnering, like I was saying, with clergy groups, with other coalitions that already have that community network, we can work with those specific groups to do the outreach and to do the engagement because they understand the lay of the land. They speak the language that the community does. So we can use them as intermediaries to kind of push the message out or put out feelers so we can understand how we should think about engaging. We don't literally have to go to each organization, but we can use proxies that represent groups of organizations and things like that. Yeah, I think using proxies or intermediaries is a really great point. They can help you get individuals and community organizations that you might not even have originally had on your list as people to reach out to. So I think they can also help kind of fill some gaps and increase trust as, a, as an intermediary and as a proxy. This has been a very insightful and enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me today and for being a part of this podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Amanda. It has been a pleasure being here with you. Have a great day.